Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, it was one year ago at this time that there was something put forth known as Trans Visibility Day. And uh, President Biden came out and tried to affirm people who struggle with gender dysphoria and say that they're very brave and they, they ought to go through with transitioning. And uh, a section of his administration in the Health and Human Services uh, Department put out some memos uh, that basically said that the government would consider taking children away from parents who did not affirm them in their gender dysphoria. In other words, if you had a three, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, all the way up through the teenage years, and you had a boy, but the boy thought he was a girl, and you did not want the child to transition, you did not want hormone therapy, you did not want any surgery done on the child, that the Biden administration would consider taking that child away from you in order to give that child, quote unquote, gender affirming care. Now, I don't care whether you're a Christian or not, that is monstrous. To say that you are going to take a child away from a parent and put that child on cross-sex hormones or surgically remove body parts from that child? Have we completely lost our minds? Well, the president this month just came out and said this. It's not like, you know, a kid wakes up one morning and says, you know, I decided I want to become a man or I want to become a woman or I want to change. I mean, what, 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 what are they thinking about here? They're human beings. They love, they have feelings, they have inclinations that are... I mean, it, it just, to me, is, I don't know, it, it's cruel. And the way we do it is we make sure we pass legislation like we passed on same-sex marriage. You mess with that, you're breaking the law, and you're going to be held accountable. All right, now I don't know if you could follow what the president just said there, but he's basically saying it's cruel to prevent the mutilization of minors. It's cruel to prevent surgeries. It's cruel to prevent people giving children cross-sex hormones. In other words, we ought to give them cross-sex hormones, just like he said a year ago. We ought to give them mastectomies and other surgeries to try and get them to transition, which as we all know in our hearts is impossible to do. If you're a man, you're always gonna be a man. If you're a woman, you're always gonna be a woman. You can mutilate your body, but you can't change your biology. So he's saying it's sinful to prohibit 
this kind of treatment to Meyer, uh, to, to minors. Now, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, who I appreciate because he does not pull any punches on culture war issues. He put out a video where right next to President Biden saying it's cruel to prevent these surgeries, he put next to, and someone on his team obviously did this, next to Biden saying these things, pictures of people that have tried to get these surgeries. And tragically, you see the gross and awful results of these surgeries in these pictures. And you can see this, and I don't know who puts this out. I guess it's from his campaign or his office. He's not campaigning right now anyway. Uh, DeSantis isn't. Uh, it's called DeSantis War, War Room on Twitter, and it has a graphic warning on it. And it says, Biden thinks it's cruel that Florida is not allowing experimental sex change operations for kids. So as Biden is saying it's cruel to prevent these surgeries, you see the awful results visually of the sur surgeries right next to it. Now, he's just telling the truth here. In fact, uh, I'll have a book coming out here about May 1st, an update to Correct Not Politically Correct. It's now going to be called Correct Not Politically Correct about same-sex marriage and transgenderism. And in this book, I quote from people who have actually had these so-called surgeries, and they, they just relate what a nightmare it is to try and do this and how it really doesn't work. Now, why should we be concerned about this? Well, first of all, as human beings, we should be concerned about our fellow human beings, regardless of whether we're Christians or not. Obviously, Christianity gives us the justification for protecting people from evil, because unless God exists, nothing's good or evil. But we ought to be concerned about our fellow men and women, and especially our children. And so when the President of the United States says, we ought to be doing these surgeries. We need to stand against that. And if we have people in the church trying to say that this is a good thing to try and, to try and transition minors or to try and say that the church ought to bless LGBTQ behaviors, we need to stand that or stand against that as well. And I wrote a, uh, a blog which I don't write very many of. I really have to get annoyed to write one. It's on our website. It's called, He Gets Us, But Do We Get Him? The Case for Criticizing False Teachers. I just want to relate a short section of this because people are confused about whether or not we ought to call out false teachers. Oh, that's unfair. That's not right. Actually, <laughs> It's commanded in Scripture. Here's what I say. Jesus spent much of his time criticizing the false teachings and practices of the religious politicians known as the Pharisees, whose hearts were far from God. He also warned people who led young believers astray, quote, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's from Matthew 18, 6. Paul exposed five false teachers by name in his letters to Timothy. They're among the last letters he wrote. In fact, 2 Timothy was the last letter he wrote. He warned in 2 Timothy, in fact, this is the last letter, the last chapter he wrote. 
He said, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. 2 Timothy 4.3. He also told the Romans to, quote, Watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. That's Romans 16, verses 17 to 18. You know, normally that's flyover country. Most of the, most of the dialogue in Romans is about Paul saying, greet so-and-so, greet Rufus, greet this person, greet that person. And right in the middle, he has nudged right in there this call to watch out for false teachers. And notice the people who are causing the divisions are not those defending the truth. They're not those defending orthodoxy. They are those that are introducing the false teachings. In other words, friends, don't any, anyone ever call you uh, or, or accuse you of being divisive when you're trying to defend the truth. If someone is bringing a false teaching into the church or is just teaching false things, you are not being divisive when you correct them. They are being divisive when they're teaching those false teachings. Anyway, I go on to say in this blog post, in fact, every writer of the New Testament warned against false teachers at some point. Peter said that false teachers would, would, would introduce, quote, destructive heresies that promise people freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity. That's 2 Peter 2. John wrote, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. That's 1 John 4.1. The writer of Hebrews told us not to be carried away by strange teachings. That's Hebrews 13.9. Jude said we need to contend for the faith because... Quote, ungodly people pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ as our own sovereign and Lord. That's Jude 3 and 5. Now, isn't that a perfect description of progressive Christianity? Jude said we need to contend for the faith because ungodly people pervert that grace. You know, they don't believe in grace. They think the atonement's wrong. Pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality? Yeah, we got to obey all the culture on all the sexual issues now. And deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord? Yeah, Jesus isn't the only way. There's many ways to God. This, this one verse in Jude <laughs> completely obliterates progressive Christianity. James cautioned us about becoming teachers because teachers will be judged more strictly. He says that in James 3.1, and the list goes on. Every writer at the New of the New Testament says something about false teachings. In fact, I think Elisa Childers just recently said, and thank, thanks to Elisa and Natasha for doing the program last week. Anyway, Elisa was doing some research on this, and I think she said that every single book of the New Testament, maybe with the exception of two of them, explicitly mentioned false teachers. So to say that we ought not be involved in exposing false teachers is to ignore the scriptures. In fact, in one sense, the entire Bible is one long warning to avoid false teachings and practices. Yet somehow modern people are under the impression that it is a bigger sin to warn people of false teaching than to actually be a false teacher. Now, if you want that whole column uh, or 
blog post. Just go to crossexamine.org and look for He Gets Us, But Do We Get Him? The Case for Criticizing False Teachers. I just read a short section of it there because we are confused. We have to protect the sheep from the wolves. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, I want to get to a couple of your questions that you've sent in. And if you want to send in a question, I try and get to as many as I can. I'm sorry I can't get to all of them. But uh, send your question to hello at crossexamined.org, hello at crossexamined.org. Here is a great question from Jessica. Jessica writes, I understand and agree with the arguments for not voting for Democrats considering their platform. But according to the Bible, do I have to be politically engaged? Do I have to vote for Republicans then by default, especially when quite a few will not condemn neo-Nazi and white supremacist actions? This is a personal question for me because we live in the South and my husband is not white and a naturalized citizen. During the last presidential election, I saw quite a few Trump flags and Confederate flags together on vehicles and many hateful bumper stickers to the point that I began to be worried about my family being targeted for a hate crime. So while I won't vote Democrat, according to the Bible, do I have to be politically engaged at all and vote for the other side, even if I feel the rhetoric and actions put my family at risk? What a great question, Jessica. Yeah, life is complicated, isn't it? That is really a great question. And my answer is this. No, you don't have to vote for anyone. If there is no one you like, you can abstain. But we should be engaged to get people with biblical or natural law policy positions as candidates. You know, it's it's partially our fault. And, you know, I know you can, you're only one person. You can't do much, but you you can only do what you can do. Right. And since none of us are going to be any more than one person anytime soon, <laughs> we might as well just use the, the the capabilities and the abilities we have to make a difference. We've got to work to get uh, candidates with the right policy positions out there. In fact, we may want to be candidates ourselves, okay? So when you see uh, two platforms and you don't like either platform, it would probably, in my view, to be, it would be best to vote for the least bad platform. Did I say that? Or the least worst platform. And in fact, when it comes to candidates, it's always a choice between uh, bad and worse, right? Because we're all fallen. You know, even if we're Trump, or let me, let me change the Trump poll thing. Let's, let's, let's talk about, say it was Billy Graham running against Hitler. That would, that would be a, a starker contrast than what we've had. But Billy Graham is still fallen, right? Or was, obviously, when he was alive. Uh, same, and, and Hitler is obviously as evil as evil can be. But they're both bad choices. Just one is less bad than another. So we're all fallen. But I also want to say this. There is an important distinction between the platform of the policies that you're voting for and the diverse group of people that may support that platform. Right. Uh, I mean, if you had to agree with everyone that voted for your candidates. Or let's just say your candidate for president, you could never vote for anyone. You are not endorsing the behavior or beliefs of all the fellow voters who vote for your candidate or vote for your platform, you are agreeing with the platform, not all the voters that advocate for the platform, if that makes sense. Sure, there may be unsavory people who are voting for 
the platform that you like, that you think is most in line with the Bible and natural law. But it would be silly to say, well, I can't vote for that platform because some of the people who will vote for that platform I don't like or I think are immoral in certain areas of their lives. Because now you're not getting the benefit of that good platform, that good policy that, that you would have gotten if you had voted for it. James says, is it James? I think it's James who says that he who knows the right and good thing to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for him. All right? So if you know you can do something good by voting for one platform, even though that platform is never going to be perfect, even though that candidate is never going to be perfect, I think you ought to do that. Now, are you obligated to do that? Did the Bible say you have to vote? No, the Bible doesn't say that. I'm, 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 I'm taking a whole bunch of scriptures together, and I'm trying to apply these general principles to specific situations. If you, in your heart, think that I can't vote for either of these platforms, okay, then don't. But I want to, I want to, I want to reiterate that when you are voting, particularly at the presidential level, and it's even true of the congressional level, you are not just voting for a person, you're voting for a platform. The parties usually stay together and they vote according to their platforms. Uh, the parties hold very strong disciplinary positions. The leaders do with their, with their representatives. They don't allow them to waver very much. If a maverick in the party decides to go against the leader of that party too often, that person's going to get primary. That person's not going to get reelected. That party leader is not going to put resources behind that maverick rep. And so that rep will, will probably not get reelected. So they, they kind of toe the line. They, whatever the leader says, we're going to vote. That's how they vote. So you've got to keep that in mind. You're not voting for a personality. You're voting for a platform. So it's a great question, though, Jessica. You have to follow your conscience on this. But I would say all things being equal, you should be involved politically somehow. If it, if it means that you can't, you, you don't think you can vote either way, fine. But at least be involved politically in the sense that you know what the candidates stand for. In the next election cycle, you're going to try and get better candidates in there. I don't think uh, it's we're good citizens or even good Christians if we're completely out of the political process. It's too important. As I've talked about many times on this program, it is not our primary responsibility, but it can affect our primary responsibility. What's our primary responsibility? To love God, to know God, and to make him known. Well, politics can prevent us from adequately making God known. It can prevent us from preaching the gospel legally, because legally they can rule out religious freedom and religious practice as they do in other countries and are beginning to do here. Ironically, as we talked about earlier, in the name of LGBTQ activism. So Christians are the ones that are being put into the closet. So we have to be involved at some level. All right, do what you can, but follow your conscience on who you vote for. All right, uh, with the caveat being that hopefully your conscience is going to vote for the platform that lines up the most with biblical values. All right, uh, Asa asks this question. First, I would like to thank you for teaching me many arguments to help me both better understand and defend the faith. Second, I have one question. Is it ever okay to vote for a candidate or civil magistrate who hates the Lord Jesus? 
Yeah, I wish we didn't have to uh, vote for uh, people that hated the Lord Jesus, but sometimes you have no choice. As we just mentioned, it's not your obligation to vote for this person. But I remember what Michael Brown said in a previous podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago. He was talking about, say, a, uh, a situation where you say you've got uh, Rottweilers and they're, they're attacking children on their way to school and we need a dog catcher out there. You could have someone who loves Jesus but can't catch dogs. You can have another guy who hates Jesus, but he's a great dog catcher. Who are you going to vote for? Well, if you want to protect children, you got to vote for the guy that hates Jesus and can catch dogs. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's kind of an artificial example, but you get the idea. There may be instances where you put somebody in place that actually can get the job done, even though they're not a Christian. I mean, we do this when it comes to doctors, right? Would you rather go to a Christian doctor, a Christian brain surgeon who isn't a very good surgeon, but he's a Christian? Or would you rather go to a great brain surgeon, but he's not a Christian? I'm taking the great brain surgeon who's not a Christian. God can work through people even when they are not Christians, and he does that all the time. So that's a good question, Ava. Thank you for asking us. Another question I had had to do with witnessing to Roman Catholics. And uh, my best advice is to get the book, Roman Catholics and Evangelicals, Agreements and Differences. This book was written by my co-author, Dr. Norman Geiser, and a colleague of his by the name of Ralph McKenzie. It's about 25 years old, but it's still the best book on the topic. In fact, it's almost 30 years old now. It's endorsed by both Roman Catholics and Evangelicals. It's a fair book. It talks about where Protestants and, and or I should say Evangelicals and Catholics agree and disagree. And it can help you understand Roman Catholic doctrine if you're not a Roman Catholic yourself. And even if you are a Roman Catholic, it'll help you understand it and where it differs from Protestant or Evangelical doctrine. I would also ask the question I ask even atheists, where I ask, if Christianity were true, would you become an atheist? <laughs> I don't ask that question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, would you, if Christianity were true, would you be? No, I'll stay an atheist. That's what they say. <laughs> no, I say, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And a lot of times they'll say no. Well, if you have a Catholic friend and you, and, and you know they're not saved, and there are Catholics who are saved, by the way. People ask me, do you think Catholics can be saved? I always say, I even think some Baptists can be saved, right? Because it's not where you go to church that determines whether or not you're, you're saved. It's whether or not you've accepted the free gift of eternal salvation that Christ has provided. But I digress. Ask them if evangelical Protestant Christianity were true, would you become an evangelical Protestant? Just ask them. See what they say. You know, if they hesitate or say no, it probably doesn't matter how much evidence you give them, how much you witness them, you witness to them. What can you do with somebody like that? The same thing you can do with people who say they wouldn't become a Christian no matter what. You can pray for them. You can plant seeds. You can love them, which means doesn't mean you approve of everything they do. And you wait. Maybe something's going to come up later down the road. An opportunity will arise where you can talk further with them, or maybe they're going to be open. Maybe some tragedy strikes them as it strikes all of us at some point. And at that point, that, they may be open to thinking differently about God. So do those four things. Pray, plant seeds, love, and wait. And in the meantime, try and understand what the other person believes. And you can also ask a lot of questions. And of course, Greg Kokel's tactics book is great on that. Ask a lot of questions. Well, why do you think that's true? 
Why do you think um, scripture alone is not enough? Uh, why do you think the Pope is uh, the, 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 old, the only arbiter of the scriptures? Well, why do we need a Pope? Why do you think the Pope's infallible when he speaks ex cathedra? You could, you could ask a lot of these questions. Why do you think we ought to pray to Mary? Uh, shouldn't we go directly to Jesus? There's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Christ Jesus, as, as uh, Paul says. Oh, you can, you can just ask questions. Just try and learn what they believe and why they believe it. And I think when you do that, you'll find when you ask Catholics or even when you ask Protestants why they believe what they believe, they won't really have good answers most of the time. And before somebody is going to abandon his worldview and accept your worldview, they need to begin to doubt their worldview. And so you get them to begin to doubt their worldview by asking them questions to see if they can support it. Most of the time they can't. So just ask a lot of questions. That'll be helpful. And if you really want to know the essentials of Christianity and what C.S. Lewis would call mere Christianity, you need to sign up for our brand new uh, version of the course that we're about to run called, called, what's it called, Jorge? <laughs> it's called Life's Compass. <laughs> Jesus, you, and the essentials of Christianity. Yeah, I'm teaching it. I don't even know the name of my own course, but it's going to be fun. It's starting March 27th, and we're going to have uh, 17 different sessions. We're going to have uh, six uh, live Zoom Q&A sessions, the 17 video sessions you'll do on your own, but then you'll we'll come together on six different occasions for live Q&A. So if you want to be a part of that, go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see it there. And... We will uh, go through the essentials of Christianity and answer a lot of questions about salvation, about faith and works, about faith and reason, about the resurrection, about evidence for Christianity, about why God even cares about faith, why is that important, about grace versus works. All of these things we're going to talk about in the course in the course on the essentials of Christianity called, what's it called again, Jorge? It's called, I gotta come up with a new name for this course, don't we? It's called Life's Compass. I why do I always forget Life's Compass. You know why we you know why we use that Life's Compass thing? Because it's such a great analogy. I think John Stone Street uh, originally came up with this and I asked him, hey John, can I use this? He goes, Yeah, yeah, sure. The analogy goes like this. Uh, imagine if you're lost in the woods and uh the only way you can get back to civilization is if you follow a magnetic compass. You know, you got to find true north. Um, but when you take out your compass, instead of the arrow pointing to magnetic north, the arrow always points to you. No matter which way you turn, that arrow points to you. Is that going to be a helpful compass? No. You know where you are. You're trying to figure out where north is. Well, so many people in our culture today think that the compass points to them. That whatever somebody thinks is true, it is true. It's true for them. It's their truth. Well, that's not going to ground you in reality. That's going to ground you in a delusion. And so when we say, where does life's compass point? We're basically saying life's compass points to Jesus. And when you understand that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of this universe, and he's the creator of you, and he came to die on the cross to, to absolve you of your sins and then to give you his righteousness. When you realize that and that he ha decides what's the right way to live and the wrong way to live, 
then you will know where life's compass really points. And then you can get really into the business of living life, not just for now, but for eternity. And so that's what we're going to talk about in Life's Compass, Jesus, You, and the Essentials of the Faith. So I hope you're going to want to be a part of that. But sign up soon. We limit the number of people in that course. So we'll, so everyone can ask a question during the live Q, uh, Q&A Zoom sessions. So go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You will see it there. And Lord willing, we will see you here next week. Don't forget, we're going to be at uh, the uh, Valdosta State University this Thursday night. It will be live streamed, but if you're down in southern Georgia, you can join us there. The details on the website. Next week in Indiana at a couple of colleges, Ball State, then Indiana Purdue University. Following week, we're going to be at Ohio State. Week after that, we're going to be in Louisiana for a couple of colleges. I'll give you more details once we get closer there, and I'll see you here, Lord willing, next week. God bless.